Revelation 4, verse 1 says, After these things I looked, and behold, standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one who sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on those thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were the four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, full of eyes and around within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. And Father, we humbly pause and pray, give us grace now and the help of your Holy Spirit to be prepared and to be able to hear what your spirit would speak to us this day through what your spirit has spoken here in the written word of God already. Please bless your word to our hearts now, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, we have a phrase that we say, a preview of coming attractions. A preview of coming attractions. And of course, that implies viewing a brief sample of something before it's fully able or available to be enjoyed completely. Often we say that in regards to maybe a, a movie trailer, a, a preview of coming attractions. Well, in Revelation 4 and 5, the Holy Spirit gives to us a preview of a coming wonderful, not just attraction, but experience for the child of God. Revelation 4 and 5 gives to us our coming eternal experience in heaven. And look, this morning, let me say, despite what your earthly storyline may be like right now, I assure you this, if you know Jesus Christ sincerely as Lord and Savior, there are really great things coming ahead. There's a great future, a great experience that we're going to one day get to step into. And the Bible graciously gives to us this record here by the Spirit in these two chapters to show us what we will one day step into and be participating in together with all of those who we know and love who were believers who've already preceded us 
and who've entered into the presence of the Lord, and they're already here in this scene, enjoying these very things, and one day we'll get to participate as well. Now, as we come to chapter 4, it is a very fitting occasion to reflect on Jesus' instruction from chapter 1, verse 19, where there Jesus gave, really we said, what is somewhat of the basic outline of the three major sections of the revelation that John's receiving. If you want to glance back with me to chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus there said this. He said, write these things, instructing John, which you have seen, the things which are, that is right now, and the things which will take place, that is future, after this. So notice, the things which John had seen, that's a reference to Revelation chapter 1, the first chapter where John, remember, saw initially the glorified Christ. And he saw a vision of Jesus and all of his glory and all of his heavenly splendor. That what he had, had seen. So write that down, John. And then he says, secondly, write the things which presently are, that is at that time. And that was a reference to what we just studied, chapters 2 and 3. That is the things of the present time, the times of the church and the congregations that Jesus gave seven messages to. So the second, if you would, major section of the book, chapters two and three, is the church is being addressed. And then thirdly, Jesus said also that John was to write things which will take place, future tense, out further. He said, after this, that is after the church age, chapters two and three, and that term after this in the original language is the Greek term metatalta. Now, here's why I bring this to your attention. As you come to chapter 4, verse 1, as our text opens this morning in chapter 4, you notice the first phrase that shows up in chapter 4, verse 1, after these things, John says, I looked. That phrase, after these things, there again is that same Greek term from chapter 1 that Jesus spoke. Here's the term metatalta, indicating we've now come, chapter 4, verse 1, to this third and final section of the outline of the book of Revelation, things that will take place after this, indicating we've now come to that transition, the third transition. Now, the logical question may be this, what is intended by after these things. In other words, after what things? Well, let's think about that logically. We just looked at chapters 2 and 3, the things of what? The church. We just looked at the things of the church, implying after the things of the church age. So he's saying these are now the things that will come to pass or that will be experienced after the age of the church is complete and through. We're looking now, going forward in Revelation, at things for the believer that will take place after the church age, when the church age comes to its conclusion. In fact, it's very interesting in chapters 1 through 3, the word church or churches appears repeatedly in those first three chapters 19 times. Now, in chapters 4 and 5, John will give to us insights of the eternal realm in heaven at the throne of God. And then when we come to chapter 6 through 18, he will then begin to describe what the Bible refers to as the tribulation period, a seven-year period where the righteous wrath of God will be poured out on Christ's rejecting humanity. And here's the interesting thing. In chapter 6 through 18, the word church is completely absent. So 
in chapters one through three, 19 times, church, churches, church, churches, church, churches. Chapter six through 18, as soon as the tribulation starts and all the wrath of God is being poured out and we read of all these different judgments, the word church never appears once. It's absent. I believe it's a subtle reminder that the church is absent, that the church isn't around on earth during that time that that is taking place. So John says here, verse one, after these things I looked and behold, look what he says, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet. We'll see a lot of metaphors now. Notice it was like a trumpet speaking with me. And the voice said to him, come up here, that is to heaven, and I will show you things which must take place, there it is again, metatalta, after this. So John now continues to receive revelation, and notice the focus on the church now ceases from what Jesus was doing in chapters 2 and 3, and John looks and he says that, behold, a open doorway up into heaven he sees, and he hears now an invitation as a believer, as a part of the church. And what's the invitation to John as a believer and as a part of the church? The invitation of the voice that speaks with the open door into heaven says, come up here. Come up here now. I want you to see things at the eternal throne of God. Now follow the flow again, laid out in the Holy Spirit's record. Chapters two and three, after instruction to the church, during the time of the church, John then sees an open door in heaven, and the first voice he hears is like a trumpet, which means it was loud, it was clear. Trumpets were used to awaken people, to guide them, to take a transition, to start out into a march or to head out into a battle. They were, they were instruments used for transition, and that voice calls out instructing, come up here. In other words, depart from where you are on earth and come up here now into the heavenly eternal realm at the throne of God. And we see John then translated, if you would, up into heaven. Now, I hope you have. If not, let me bring to your attention. You notice the language in verse 1 there sounds very familiar in what John is describing in the Revelation very familiar to 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, which describe an event that is going to take place with the church. 1 Thessalonians 4 describes it this way, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and remain, that is believers on the earth, the church at that time, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall be with the Lord forever. Again, very similar language. 1 Corinthians 15, again, says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, a euphemism for death. We shall not all die, the ideas, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall all be changed, transformed. So notice, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, describe this event, we often refer to it as the catching away of the saints, that the saints, Christians, those who are truly a part of the church because they are born again of the Spirit of God, they know Jesus, 
in a very instantaneous way in an abrupt manner will be instantly, abruptly caught away from the earth and drawn up into heaven. The Bible tells us that Jesus in this event doesn't come down to the earth, but he departs, if you would, from the eternal existence of heaven, that he, he in a sense, appears in the sky, he comes down, and then a trumpet blast of some sound, a voice, an invitation, a strong command, and you and I as believers are caught up instantaneously to meet the Lord in the air, brought into heaven and changed and transformed in our new resurrected glorified bodies drawn to be with the Lord. Now, often we refer to that as the rapture. And the reason that we use the word rapture comes from the Latin term of this idea of harpazo or the catching away of the saints. And that's why you're saying, I don't find the word rapture in the Bible anywhere. Well, it, it's harpazo in the Greek. It's the, cat, the catching away the Latin, when the Latin Vulgate existed for many years, used the term rapture, which basically means the exact same thing. We just kept that terminology. But a, a fairer statement really is the catching away of the saints, where we're caught away by Jesus, drawn up into heaven. And again, before I move on, can I say, follow the flow here that what's being described we're brought home to heaven, spared from seven years of judgment. And the flow, again, chapters two and three is what? The church age. So you have the church being spoken to, the age of the church, chapters two and three. And after the age of the church, chapter four, verse one, after these things, referring to the things of the church, John says, after the things of the church, I saw heaven open and I heard a voice like a trumpet saying, come up here into heaven. And now I want to show you eternal things and how wonderful to see that that happens prior to chapter 6 through 18, where wrath and judgment very severely begins to be poured out on the earth. Again, I see this as another wonderful assurance that the church will not be present on the earth during the time the judgment of God is being poured out. We will be removed prior that authoritative voice of the Lord like a trumpet blast to bring about a transition of his troops we're his soldiers. We're drawn up into glory. And to me, I see this as another great encouragement of what we often refer to as a pre-tribulation rapture. That is that we are removed prior to the tribulation events. Now, as John hears, verse 1, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. He then goes on, verse 2, to tell us, and immediately, the idea is instantaneously, I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one who sat on the throne. So John's instantaneously drawn into the realm of the spirit. In some way, he's now drawn into the spiritual dimension. He's able to see such things. And it seems somewhat perhaps translated upward into this eternal realm of the throne of God. And notice the first thing that captures John's attention as he is drawn up to heaven, the first thing that captures John's attention is what? He says, behold, a throne and one sitting upon the throne. That's the first thing that John's attention is riveted upon is a throne. Now, a throne is a picture of the sovereign power of a king, right? When we think of a throne, we think of rulership, a king on a throne with the authority to determine what happens, and we're told here that the throne is set there in heaven. The language means that it's fixed, it's permanent, it's established forever. 
the idea here is that throne is never vacated. And the person on the throne never changes every four years. That is a throne that for all of time and for all of eternity, the same one, the authoritative King of Kings, Lord of Lords, has been sitting there and will always be sitting there and is completely in all power and authority, ruling and directing and even overruling when necessary, ultimately the final affair of all things on the earth. And you know, how wonderful to know that when we see a world that looks like it's unraveling and it's craziness and society and culture and our own lives sometimes get a little bit crazy to always know there is a throne and there is one sitting on that throne and he is not shaken or confused. There is no voice of a puppet person behind him telling him what to do, why he sits as the face on the throne. He's the king. And he's in complete control. And how wonderful to be able to live with that awareness that there's one on that throne. And notice that John's attention, even more than being captivated by the throne, is he says there, verse 2, there's one who sat on that throne. And John here, I think, finds himself focused on the true supreme rulership of the King of Kings, the Almighty God. It reminds us really of other places where Daniel himself had a vision in Daniel chapter 7 as he was contrasting the weak and human temporary thrones of kings on the earth. And Daniel 7, Daniel got a vision and he says, I looked and thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat and his clothing was as white as snow and his hair of his head was like white and wool. His throne was a flaming fire with wheels ablaze. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him and thousands upon thousands attended to him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, and the court was seated, and the books were opened. Isaiah describes as well, we'll see, in fact, in our Wednesday night study, we're coming up to that, chapter 6, where Isaiah receives a vision of the throne of God. Particularly, we know Isaiah was seeing the Lord Jesus from the gospel accounts, giving record of it, Isaiah 6 tells us this, that Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above it stood seraphim crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And John now we see here gets blessed with this same privilege where supernaturally he's given revelation by the Spirit and he sees a vision of the throne of God. And again, notice the first and foremost thing that amazed John, and I tell you, it's going to be what amazes you and I as well, is the one that's sitting there on that throne. And we're going to see the glorious one sitting on that throne. And look, folks, let me say this this morning. What makes heaven so heavenly is him. Look, this scene is a beautiful description of all the beauty and the brilliance and the glory. But before John talks about any of that, he's, he says the first thing that captivated me wasn't the, wasn't the rainbow encircling the throne and all the lights. and the It was the one sitting on the throne. And the thing that makes heaven so wonderful, so incredible, so impressive is how incredible and impressive and amazing God is, and to be able to see him finally in all of his glory, heaven, understand, is all about seeing him. 
It's about being in his presence and worshiping the Lord. And John now begins to try and use human terms. That's why you see a lot of like and metaphors. Because think about it, as a human being, he's trying to use human language to describe eternal spiritual things in a whole different dimension. So he says a lot of the word like. Notice verse 3, he begins by saying, he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in his appearance. So he describes the appearance of beautiful light that he sees streaming forth from God's presence there on the throne. He says his appearance was like, first of all, a jasper stone. And we know from Revelation chapter 21, verse 11, that the jasper stone, it says there, is clear as crystal. So the jasper stone was a clear stone, kind of like a diamond-like feature, so perhaps very reflective of God's beautiful purity and the light shining forth like a diamond, the wonderful holiness, the utter perfection of God's presence. He also says that his presence was shining like a sardius stone, and the sardius stone is a deep blood red color. So perhaps, I don't know, maybe reflective of God's loving heart displayed most clearly in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, right? John tells us in his other epistle that God is love, and perhaps this was a reflection of the perfection of total love, of the complete beautiful love stemming forth from the presence of the Lord. It was powerful and brilliant light that was shining forth with all of its strength as God saw, or as John saw it coming, and his presence and his appearance was so amazing and overwhelming in all of its glory, all John can say is it was like, it was like some powerful, brilliant, beautiful light that I have never seen before, and he was trying to describe the beauty and the brilliance. What's interesting is that the two stones that John describes there, the jasper and the sardius stone, Remember in Exodus 28, the high priest in the Old Testament wore a breastplate and it had different gemstones on it. And each one of those different gemstones was representative of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And interestingly enough, the two stones that are described there were in that uh, breastplate that the priest would wear. And it's the jasper and the sardius stone. The jasper stone was representative of the first son of Israel, which was Reuben. And Reuben's name means behold a son. And then the sardius stone was the last stone on the priest's breastplate. And the sardius stone was representative of Benjamin. And Benjamin's name means son of my right hand. So perhaps, I don't know, maybe God's heavenly message of these brilliant lights coming forth Reuben means behold a son, Benjamin, son of my right hand. Perhaps God's heavenly message emanating from his throne is behold a son, the son of my right hand. And there's something about that message being strongly conveyed as the son of God, the focal point, is emanating with brilliant light. Well, John goes on in verse 3 to describe some of then what he saw around the throne. Notice he says next, verse 3, there was a rainbow, he says, around the throne in appearance like an emerald. So encircling the entire throne of God, encircling it, there was this glorious rainbow with an emerald greenish-like hue. And again, we know from the book of Genesis, very early on after the creation of the heavens and the earth, 
the rainbow was what God selected. It belonged to him first. The rainbow was what God selected in a holy, pure, precious manner as a beautiful sign and symbol of his faithfulness to his promises and that he did not agree with certain sins that he ultimately had to judge the entire earth for in the days of Noah and that his word and promise would never fail or never change. Because remember, after the flood of Noah, God then said that the rainbow would be the sign and the symbol to assure humanity that God would never judge the world again through a rain and a cataclysmic worldwide flood like that. And every time they saw a beautiful rainbow, and it's kind of hard to miss a beautiful rainbow if you've ever seen a natural rainbow, God said that rainbow is a symbol from me of my unchanging nature, that my word is never altered. It has been the same. It will always be the same. And that my promises are always reliable and the rainbow was to be a symbol and a sign of the faithfulness of God, that he never changes, that he always keeps his promises and fulfills his word. And John sees the rainbow encircling God's throne, no doubt a reflection reminding from the throne of God that he is an unchanging God, that he's faithful, he's a God who keeps his word and keeps his promises. And John sees this beautiful brilliance all around the throne of God. In verse 4, John goes on to describe saying, and around the throne, there were also 24 thrones, lesser thrones, the ideas. And on those thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes. They had crowns of gold on their heads. So John now sees these, if you would, lesser thrones, we might say inferior thrones, encircling God's throne where his presence is at, and upon those lesser thrones, 24 elders on these 24 thrones all facing the Lord. Now, let me say on the front end before I you know, kind of work through this a little bit, I believe this is a representation of the people of God worshiping there around the throne of God, facing the throne of God in worship. All the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints now unified together, worshiping there around the throne of God. Now, let's consider for a few moments, 24 elders, 24 thrones described around the throne and some other scripture to help kind of connect the dots, if you would, a little bit spiritually. There's another occasion where we find a group of 24, and that's, lo and behold, in First Chronicles 24, where David was there setting in order the temple worship system all of which the temple worship system, remember, was a foreshadowing of the eternal dimension and heaven. When Moses put together the tabernacle and all of that, when the temple was put together, those things were always reflective of the true house of God, the temple of God, the eternal dimension, what we see even here in the word of God. And when David was putting together the worship system, there were 24 courses of priests chosen to serve on a rotating schedule in the temple to help facilitate the worship that was going on. And those 24 courses of priests served as representatives of the entire nation, 24 representing the entire nation of God's people and their spiritual worship under the Lord. So that 24 was a representative number in that day. The word elders that's used here, 
You see the term elders in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have the idea of elders as spiritual leaders. Elders in Old Testament and New Testament are always those who are representatives of God's people. So whenever we see the term elder, it is a term used as a representative. Notice also the 24 elders, it says, are sitting, which means they're in a posture of rest. They're completely comfortable and at peace and rest before God in this time. And notice the descriptions that of what's said of them connect directly to things that we have actually just studied in chapters 2 and 3. It says there, verse 4, that they are what? Seated on thrones. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus promised the overcoming believers in the church there that they themselves would one day sit on lesser thrones, that just like he sat on a throne. It tells us there in verse 4 that these there, the 24 elders, also it says they were clothed in white robes. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus, speaking to the church of Sardis, told believers there one of the eternal promises they would experience is that they would be clothed in white garments as believers, which speaks of the righteous standing or the holiness that make them acceptable to be in God's presence in heaven. It also tells us here in regarding these 24 elders that they had crowns of gold on their head. The term is the Stephanos, not the diadem. The Stephanos crown was a victor's crown given to overcomers when they ran their race well. It was a reward given to them. And in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, again, to the church, Jesus said, I will give you when you overcome this world and enter into eternity, the crown of life. And all throughout the New Testament, there are multiple references to believers receiving crowns as a reward for faithfully serving Jesus. Finally, in chapter 5, verse 8 to 10, we see these elders that are described here appear once again. And in chapter 5, verse 8 through 10, it says that these 24 elders are there in heaven. And it says, they fall down before the lamb, each having a harp. It says, of golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, believers, God's people. The elders refer to as saints. And they sang a song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now listen, only believers can say that. Angels haven't been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. So no doubt when you compare scripture with scripture to me, it becomes very evident that for whatever reason, connecting the dots, these 24 elders we see around the throne of God there are in some way representative of all saints, believers, you and I as well, who will one day join into that. And they're described here in this representative way as the people of God around the throne of God. Now, John goes on in chapter five to say this, and from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. He now describes the sounds that he was hearing from the throne of God, sights, sounds. And these sounds, notice, are very picturesque to uh, Exodus chapter 19 when God was giving the law on Mount Sinai. And remember, it says that from God's presence was coming lightnings and thunderings. And when we think of those terms, lightning and thunder, what are they a picture of? They're a picture of great power. 
I don't know how many people who go outside and say, I hope I get hit by a lightning bolt. Or who haven't heard the power of thunder and boom. And the, 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 and the idea is thunder and lightning are representative of what? Incredible power. And no doubt as John is hearing these things, it was evidence proceeding from God's throne that God acts with supreme power, with all power, like the power of lightning and thundering and that no one overrules God and no one even dares challenge God. You know, it's almost somewhat a little bit sobering and scary to think of the way some people shake their fist at God and want to spit in God's face and they have no idea of the power of the one sitting on that throne. And here, no doubt reflective of the incredible power of the Almighty God, the voices we'll see described in our verses ahead. Look as verse 5 goes on. He says, And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, we've already seen and discussed twice already earlier in our study in Revelation how these seven spirits of God are emblematic in the typology of Revelation as a spiritual symbol to represent the Holy Spirit and the completeness, the totality of the Spirit's ministry. We gather this from Isaiah chapter 11, and we know the Bible is very clear that there is only one Holy Spirit, that there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Seven, we know, as we've talked about, is a number of completeness, seven days in a week, seven notes in a scale, and so seven is always a number speaking of completeness, and no doubt this is described in this way to refer to the complete or the total ministry of the Spirit of God as he operates in the life of a believer through his power in and through us in a complete way, doing all types of different things in and through our lives. You notice the additional description here that John somehow sees and describes is he also says of the Holy Spirit's presence and what was going on in God's throne there, that it was like, he says uh, as well, burning lamps, seven burning lamps before the throne. So perhaps they are picturing the illuminating work of the Spirit and the power, the Spirit's fire and power that comes forth from the throne of God to work. In verse 6, he then goes on to next say, before the throne there was a sea of glass-like crystal. Now, all this is so beautiful. For some reason, I just resonate with verse 6. Around the throne, there was a sea of glass-like crystal. Imagine a sea is a massive thing, right? So imagine a massive body of water, perfectly clear, perfectly still, like glass. And I like that because I get very seasick if, there's, if I was sitting in a bathtub and there was a ripple, I'd get seasick and vomit. <laughs> and you can't drag me out on a sea. You can't drag me out on a bay or an ocean. And here's this sea of glass. The idea is it's perfectly still, and it's beautifully, imagine, beautifully reflecting all that light and brilliance John saw earlier. Imagine the light shining through that clear crystal sea, reflecting off of that. I think this year is just a depiction, if you would, of the total peace of the eternal realm. Just the tranquility of the atmosphere of heaven like a peaceful sea of glass. 
that everything's finally just calm. Everything's finally all right. <laughs> There's no more turbulence, no more storms, no more waves, no more issues, no more shipwrecks. Calm. Finally. And it will never be disturbed again. And just the incredible peace of heaven's environment, total peace forever and ever and ever. John goes on in the second half of verse 6 to say, and in the midst of the throne and around it were these four living creatures full of eyes front and back. Now this does sound a little sci-fi. Don't get freaked out here. The first living creature was like a lion. The second, like a calf. The third living creature, and this helps, he says, had a face like a man. This is the implied idea we know from Exodus, or Ezekiel 1 and 10 of the other things. These are face descriptions. The fourth living creature was like an eagle or had a face like an eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they don't rest day or night saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, John at this point begins to see now the angelic beings there around the throne of God. And we know from, again, Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10, what's being pictured here, what are referred to as cherubim. One of the types of angelic order that do exist that God created. And the cherubim always seemed to be found dwelling right in the midst of the presence of God. Remember, there was a cherubim, we're told, stationed back in the Garden of Eden originally, where God's presence was there with Adam. The cherubim were embroidered on the curtain temple veil before the Holy of Holies, which was where the presence of God was manifest behind that veil. The cherubim also, remember, were engraved in gold sitting on top of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, which was where God's presence was manifest there as well. And here we're told that we see these angelic creatures, the cherubim. We find them, verse 6 here it says, around and right in the midst of the presence of God in his throne. Now, like all angelic beings, they are ministers created by God, created supernatural beings to represent God in his throne and to serve on God's behalf. And in that way, they become reflective of the nature of God. You notice these angelic beings described here. One of the things we're told is that they were full of eyes, it says, front and back. The idea there is seems describing how they were fully aware of their surroundings at all time. Having eyes everywhere, they're seeing all things. They are completely aware of their surroundings, in some ways reflective of an all-knowing God who sees everything and who knows everything. It's interesting, we're told as well in verse 7, that they have a face like, and he mentions four different types of faces that these angelic beings had, a face like a lion. Again, think about a lion. What's a lion? A lion is the king of the beasts. Great power and authority. And angels, no doubt, should be revered because they have great power and great authority operating from heaven's throne. Like a lion, they have great and strong power. He says they also had a face like a calf or an ox, which is the strongest of the working animals. And perhaps reminding us that angels do God's work. That's what they do. They're God's ministers. They go out and they bring to pass works for God. We'll see much of that described in our study ahead. 
They also had a face like a man, and man is the greatest of God's creation. And Hebrews 1 tells us that angels are ministering spirits to help you and I as human beings as the heirs of salvation. And also it says they fourthly had a face like a flying eagle, and the eagle is the greatest of the flying birds. They're known to soar from very high locations and to swoop down quickly. And no doubt perhaps reminding how angels descending from heaven's throne can move very swiftly from heaven to earth to bring to pass things that God wants them to do. Now, I will be first to agree with you when we look at these angelic beings described here in the Bible, they may seem very strange looking to us. It may seem very science fiction and very odd. Whoa, eyes all over, four different faces. I'm going to get there and I'm going to be, whoa, you're freaked out in heaven. But I think the thing we have to remember is this. This is a different dimension. This is a spiritual and eternal dimension. And when we're in that dimension, everything is going to be different in that dimension than this temporal dimension. Not to mention, you'll finally have a glorified body. You'll be able to handle it. Your eyes will be able to see it. Your, your glorified brain will say, oh, yeah, that makes total sense. Got the four faces thing. Had no idea what Pastor Tony was talking about when he tried to explain it and flubbed it all up to us. But now I see... Now I see exactly why they have four faces and all these eyes and all these wings, and it will all make complete sense when we're in his presence. Now, I think one of the most important things, the end of verse 8, is to notice what they were doing. Notice what it says. It says these angelic beings do not rest day or night, saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. What does that describe? These angels are engaged in ceaseless worship. From the moment they were created, for all of eternity, they have been there proclaiming this worship, and they never stop. And look what they're proclaiming as they worship, repeatedly proclaiming how holy God is. The word holy means separate, set apart, different, the idea is wholesome. No one else is like you. And so they're, again, describing his purity, his perfection, his righteousness, Secondly, they're saying, Lord God Almighty, that is, that he is the almighty ruler. They're describing his supreme power. They're proclaiming continually his incredible authority as the almighty one, as well as that he is the eternally existent one who was, which means he's been for all time. There was no beginning. The Bible says God is the beginning. And he's also not only the one who's always been, but he's also the one, it says, who is. That is present tense, which means he's the God who is always presently involved in everything, even what you're going through right now in your life. Whatever's going on, God is a present tense God. He is always aware, and he is always involved. And more than that, the angels say, and he is also the one who is to come. That is future. And to know that assurance that whatever comes to pass in the future, God's already there. He's already aware of it. That's why he can speak in a timeless way because he's outside of the time realm. He spans whatever the beginning was, which is him, what's going on all the time presently, and all the way out to the future. He's engaged and involved in all those things. And see, this is what's difficult for us because God lives outside of the time realm. We live in it, and that's why we're always getting confused <laughs> because God can speak from that eternal reference point. Now, the thing that I find fascinating, too, is consider, these angelic beings have been singing, take note, that same worship song 
for all of eternity, and they never get bored with the lyrics. I'll say this for Tommy so he don't get in trouble. We're singing that song again. Didn't we just sing that? They've been singing the same song for all of eternity, and they never tire of it. And I'll tell you why. Because every time they look to the throne of this incredible, almighty, holy, 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 incredible God who was and is and is to come, they see something else about him that even blows their angelic minds again that causes them to go, holy, holy, holy. Oh, my goodness. You're more incredible than we thought. You're more amazing than we realized the prior 3,000 hundred years or whatever. You know, just, and they just keep seeing again and again more of God's greatness, and they're overwhelmed again and again. Well, look as John describes the worship scene lastly in heaven that's going on, verse 9 through 11. He says, and whenever the living creatures, our angels, give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, all the saints, God's people there in heaven, fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Now, notice a few things by way of observation here of the worship scene happening around God's throne. The first thing I would draw your attention to is this, is as there's continuous worshiping happening around the throne of God, please notice there was an order to what was transpiring. There was an order to what was transpiring. Look at the language, verse 9. Whenever the angels give glory and honor and thanks, then the saints cast their crowns down and begin to worship and engage afterwards falling down and, and rendering their crowns. In heaven, there's a beautiful unison and harmony to all that's happening and everyone involved participating there in that realm. There's an orderliness to the worship. You don't see in the Bible around the throne of God one person off doing their own unique random thing with everyone else assembled. You don't find that. You find when this happened, then that happened, then that happened, and everyone in this harmonious, unified way with the focus on the throne in harmony is worshiping together as they're participating, and this is the realm, folks, of perfect worship. This is the realm of pure worship, totally led by the Spirit of God. And notice that there is this beautiful harmony and decency and order as they're worshiping. It all flows in connection, different things, but it all flows in connection and it all complements. There is no awkward fleshly distractions going on. Everyone is riveted on the throne. It's interesting, 1 Corinthians 14 describes when the Holy Spirit is directing worship gatherings among the church and even the gifts of the Spirit, it says that it's to happen all things decently, and in order. The language literally is with beauty and with harmony and in a perfect timing. The idea is that things happen at the right time, at the right way. Yes, there's variety, absolutely, but it all fits together harmoniously in a very orderly, proper way where the attention stays upon the throne of God and the one upon it. If I could describe by way of illustration, it's like a beautiful orchestra many different instruments, 
many different sounds, but all playing one wonderful unified song, and there's no random weird solo where somebody just decides, I feel prompted to do this. Key word, I. So maybe that's your human spirit. And look, I've been a part of this before. I've pastored another church prior to this that we planted in Pennsylvania, so I'll use that as an example so I won't get in trouble here. I remember particularly, you know, more than one occasion. I remember one particular occasion where we had someone, you know, visit on a Sunday morning, and for whatever reason, they didn't feel inclined to stand in the back. They felt inclined to stand in the front, and we're worshiping. People are raising their hands, and we're singing all the same song. And then all of a sudden, the next thing I know, here comes the scarf. Then the interpretive dance and everything else, and I'm thinking, man, like, what, what are you you doing other than distracting everyone from the presence of God because now all the focus is upon you and whether that was consciously being done or not to draw attention it was and if you really are that compelled to do that why would you say you know in love I don't want to stumble people and I don't want people's focus to be on me I want people's focus to be on God why wouldn't you just go stand in the back and wave your scarf especially when you're just visiting the first time Again, there's this beautiful harmony in this perfection of worship. Notice also, as the saints have been worshiping forever and ever, that the saints are constantly overwhelmed like the angels seeing more of more. It says there in verse 10 that the saints keep doing what? It says they keep falling down, casting their crowns before the Lord, worshiping him. And what are they saying? Verse 11 you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and to receive honor. Please notice the scene there again, folks. What's the proclamation of the saints in heaven when they're there and there's no human inhibitions anymore? They are proclaiming again and again, Lord, you are so deserving. You're worthy. That's what worthy means. You deserve. You are so worth our worship. You are so worth our praise and they say, to receive, that is to receive from them glory and honor, that is to receive glory and honor and worship for who you are, God, for what you have done and how you have worked. And they notice this is eternity, timeless, forever and ever. They never cease worshiping. And they never get bored of worshiping. There's no loss of passion or loss of interest. And why is the reason? Because this is a key thing for worship, folks. It was not about how they felt. It was about the reality that God is worthy to receive worship given to him. This is where we're headed. And so this is where we, by the Spirit of the Lord prompting us, should be preparing now to recognize, you know what? There may be times where I don't feel like passionately worshiping God. There may be times I'm you know, should show up on a Sunday. I don't feel like coming to church, but I do. And not because it's an obligation, but I come because I recognize he is worthy to receive my worship. So I will bring my sacrifice of praise to him because he's worthy to receive. If you can't find any other reason to get off of your sofa and to go to the house of God or to go to a worship meeting or... It, there is a reason. 
Because the God who saved your soul and this awesome, incredible, almighty God in our Lord Jesus Christ, he's worthy to receive our worship. He's worthy of it. And so we bring it to him so that he might receive it and be honored. And in heaven, what does it say that we're doing? It says casting crowns before his throne. God gives us a crown as a reward, and we, we can't keep it on our head. We keep going, Lord, I don't deserve this. You deserve this. And I don't know what happens. Somehow, then it comes back on your head again. <laughs> Lord, I don't, I don't deserve this. You deserve this. And for all of eternity, we're constantly aware of how worthy he is. And look what they're proclaiming. Lastly, you created all things, and by your will, God, they exist. Their existence is because of God and were created. That term there, by your will, literally could be interpreted for your pleasure or for your purpose. Everyone exists. And look, there's a key reminder there. Everything God created, which you and I are included in that as human beings, the reason for our existence, why we exist, is for God. We exist not for ourselves, not for our own pursuits and pleasure and preference. We exist to please God. That's the primary purpose of our life. And let me say this. To the degree a person understands that and lives that out and uses their life for God's pleasure and uses their life for God's purpose, that will determine how their life goes. When a person rebels against God's plan and lives for themselves and pleases themselves and pursues what they want, they're living contrary to the purpose of their existence and their life will always be hard. And it will always be a mess and it will be empty and unfulfilled and it will be self-destructive because they're basically contradicting the purpose for their existence, which is to please and to live for God. And to the degree that we seek to use our life to please and serve and glorify God, is that not how we find purpose? We find meaning, and we find fulfillment in our life, and our life takes on real purpose. Let me say to you as an encouragement this morning, your life has incredible purpose. There's a reason for your life. You exist for a reason and a purpose, and that's to live for God, to please God, to pursue God, to serve God, to worship God. And I tell you this, to the degree that you do that, you will find inner contentment and fulfillment, and your life will take on purpose because you live in proper relationship to that throne and not this earthly throne or the throne of ruling your own life. Does that make sense? Amen.